Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Shirley Duguay was a tiny woman at 4 foot 9 and less than 100 pounds. Her black shoulder-length hair framed her long angular face and big smile, while bangs highlighted her big brown eyes. Shirley had three children, and while living in Toronto, met Douglas Beamish. The couple had two children together, and Shirley was a stay-at-home mom. But their relationship was volatile, and over their 15 years together, Doug was abusive. Police were familiar with Doug, and in 1991, served him with a peace bond, a court order with conditions to keep the peace. The couple were separated in the summer of 1992, when Doug wrote a letter to Shirley and asked his sister-in-law to deliver it. Court records state that he wrote in part that he did not know why Shirley left him and that he wanted her to return and try to work things out. He went on to say that if they could not be together, there was no point in living and that he was going to kill himself. Shirley, and their children. Using his own blood, he signed it, D. Beamish. In early 1993, Shirley had enough and moved to Prince Edward Island to start over without Doug. PEI is the smallest province in Canada and sits on its east coast in the Gulf of St. Lawrence with 150,000 residents. This tiny island produces 25% of potatoes consumed for the entire country. Now, I'm a huge fan of potatoes, mashed, boiled, baked, and fried, and I did not know this. PEI has some of the most breathtaking scenery in Canada. In summer, its miles of coastline are lined with sandy beaches and sandstone cliffs that are ablaze in a red hue. Caused by a high concentration of iron, that oxidizes when exposed to the air. But its winters are brutally cold and isolating with 10 feet of snow. Shirley and her five children rent an old two-story white house in the farming community of Richmond. Located on the corner of Route 2 and Route 127, it was built in the late 1800s and sat next to the railway. Its two peak gables were unique in that one faced south and the other faced east. Tucked inside the gables were tall windows rounded at the top. Shirley drove an older model sedan and sat on an old pillow so she could see over the steering wheel. In the fall of 1994, autumn storms were rolling in and the rain poured down. On October 3rd, the New York Daily News reported 
The Shirley's neighbors heard a couple having an argument and screaming. Shirley's five children were with her father at his home. We don't know exactly how, but we do know that at some point, Doug was with Shirley in her car when he attacked her and brutally beat her about the head. Blood splattered and covered the dash, the windshield, and the door panels. Using his fists, he broke her nose and shattered her jaw in three places. She fought hard, but she was no match for him. One of his blows hit Shirley in the mouth so hard it knocked out her front tooth and she inhaled it into her lung. Shirley died at 32. Douglas used a shovel and dug a shallow grave on the edge of a wooded area near the riverbank in North Enmore. He dumped Shirley's body into the cold, dark hole and covered it with a thin layer of dirt and brush. He drove her car to a field 15 minutes away on Highway 169 in the Tyne Valley. As he got out, Shirley's blood-stained pillow from the driver's seat fell to the ground. Then he panicked. Doug was living with his parents and knew he couldn't return with his running shoes and leather jacket covered in blood. Fifteen miles down the road, he pulled over, put them in a plastic bag, and left them sitting next to a tree. Shirley's father continued to look after the children, including the oldest at 15 and the youngest, eight-year-old twins. In the past, when Shirley needed a break, she'd take off for a day or two, and he expected her back very soon. Then four days later, a woman called police to report an abandoned car near her house with no license plates. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police responded. Forensic files reported that police immediately noticed the medium impact blood splatter inside the car and the bloody pillow and ran the car serial number. It came back to Shirley. Police immediately suspected the blood was Shirley's and visited her father to get a blood sample. Forensic investigators found two types of blood in the car. One was a 50% match to Shirley's father, which meant the blood belonged to her. They didn't know who the other blood belonged to. The RCMP began one of the largest foot searches in the history of PEI. For weeks, they trudged through 200 square miles, including waterways. They used any means they could to find her, including psychics, one of whom predicted Shirley was buried near water and pine trees. But the area was vast and covered in pine trees, and the Enmore River, although less than a mile long, fed out into the bay. A half mile from the car, police found a shovel with two black hairs. They were compared to hairs from Shirley's hairbrush and microscopically appeared similar. Fifteen miles away, 
they discovered a plastic bag with bloody running shoes and a leather coat. The shoes were a size 9 and the leather jacket was too big to belong to Shirley. Police asked Shirley's father if she had any enemies. He immediately responded, her ex-common-law husband, Doug. Police interviewed Doug at his parents' home. He denied knowing where Shirley had gone and inferred that she had abandoned him and their children. Just then, Constable Roger Savoy noticed the family's all-white cat. As it strode by, it briefly rubbed against his pant leg. They asked Doug what size shoe he wore and weren't really surprised when he replied, size nine. Then they asked if he owned a leather jacket, and he claimed he did not. Shirley had been missing for three weeks. Winter was moving in, and police feared the snow would hamper their efforts. On October 22nd, 150 soldiers from the Canadian forces gathered in Richmond. Walking shoulder to shoulder, they used metal poles and metal detectors to search the underbrush. Meanwhile, police asked a forensic podiatrist to examine the running shoes. Everyone has a footprint that is unique to them, created by pressure points when they walk. Police got a warrant to get a sample of Doug's footprints. He stepped into styrofoam molds, then plaster of Paris was poured into the impressions. The podiatrist compared the molds of Doug's feet. They were a perfect match. Forensic examination of the leather jacket found 20 white hairs in its lining. Under a microscope, it was confirmed that the hairs were not human, but rather belonged to a cat. Constable Savoy thought back to their interview and Doug's white cat. And he wondered if there was a way to determine if those hairs came from the same cat. He began calling scientists around the world. Over the winter, the ground froze, and Shirley's body was entombed in the frozen earth. Then in May, a fisherman walking towards the river noticed a mound of brush that seemed out of place. He went to investigate, pulled away the dried brush, and was horrified to be staring at a shallow grave. Constable Savoy arrived just as it started to snow. It was unusual for this time of year. Although all he had on was a light rain jacket, he took it off and covered Shirley's grave to preserve any evidence. Shirley's autopsy determined that she died from blunt force trauma. The town held a funeral and lovingly laid her to rest. After hundreds of phone calls, Constable Savoy discovered that no one anywhere had ever tested a cat hair. But he refused to give up. 
Then he heard about a geneticist, Dr. Stephen O'Brien, who worked at the National Cancer Institution in the U.S., and he was one of the world's authorities on feline DNA. He made one more call. Dr. O'Brien was intrigued and agreed to give it a try. To do that, they would need a blood sample from Doug's cat, Snowball. Police obtained a subpoena and arrived at the house. Snowball seemed to sense something was up and took off running, dodging behind couches and under beds. Eventually, Snowball was caught. To maintain the chain of custody of the evidence, Constable Savoy supervised the vet withdrawing the blood and took the blood samples along with the white hairs and personally flew with the samples and hand-delivered them to Dr. O'Brien. Under examination, he and his team discovered that a single hair contained a root. From it, they were able to extract DNA, which was found to be a perfect match to Snowball. But there was a concern that P.E.I., being such a small island, may have cats that were inbred, and they wondered if that would mean they would have similar DNA. To find out, they took samples from 20 cats in the area. Although the sample was small, the results were genetically so diverse, meaning the chance that the hair found on the leather jacket did not belong to Snowball was one in 70 million. The unknown blood in Shirley's car was identified. 50% belonged to Shirley, the other 50% to Doug. Shirley's DNA had also been identified on the blood found on the running shoes and leather jacket. Then police discovered a photograph of Doug taken the day before Shirley disappeared. In it, he was wearing the identical leather jacket Police arrested Doug and charged him with first-degree murder. At his trial in the summer of 1996, an old girlfriend testified that he'd be her in front of her children, held a knife to her throat, and threatened to kill her. But the star witness at the trial was Snowball. The prosecution presented Dr. O'Brien and his feline DNA findings. Doug maintained his innocence, and his lawyer forwarded a theatrical line from the O.J. Simpson trial and declared, without the cat, the case falls flat. In the end, the jury didn't fall for it and found Doug guilty of the lesser charge of second-degree murder. In July, the judge sentenced him to 18 years to life. Doug appealed his conviction in 1998 and 1999. Both were denied. After Shirley's murder, no one moved in to the white two-story house, and it was demolished. The Saltwire reported that in 2012, a psychiatric risk assessment suggested that Doug was a low to moderate risk of violence against the public, but to intimate partners, he was an elevated risk. 
In 2013, Doug came out for parole and had also requested to be transferred to a minimum security prison. He continued to deny his guilt. The parole board noted that he had 17 disciplinary convictions and numerous charges for disobeying prison rules, and that he lacked the understanding of why he continued to act out violently. His parole and request to be moved were denied. In late 2021, Doug was moved to minimum security at the Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick. The next year, he came out for partial parole. Appearing by video link, he finally admitted to killing Shirley. CBC News reported that at his hearing, he said, I don't know even where to begin to calculate what harm I've done. There's no way to gauge what impact this has had. But there was a way to gauge his actions. Shirley's sister Marie spoke at the hearing and said, The heart-wrenching domino effect of loss and pain will never go away. After Shirley's murder, another one of her sisters drowned her pain in alcohol, while her husband died by suicide. And their father suffered 13 heart attacks. After 25 years in prison, Doug was granted a 12-hour escorted absence and admitted to the board that he was not ready for full parole. This case set a legal precedent for the first time non-human DNA was used to convict someone. Since then, dog and cat DNA has been used to solve cases in Canada the U.S., and Britain. There, cat hairs were vital in convicting David Hilder for the murder of his neighbor, David Guy. His dismembered body was wrapped in a curtain and left on the beach. Cat hairs found on his torso matched David's cat. An interesting story for another episode. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Sonia Herrick Stone. In 1981, Sonia was brutally murdered at the age of 30. Her neighbor Michael went on trial for her murder, but the jury was deadlocked. Investigators waited almost 40 years to reopen her cold case. This time, DNA convicted Michael. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>